listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity. I'm Ellie Stuhler. Joining us in conversation today from the pod at White City Place, Vicki Richardson and Nelly Ben-Hayoun. Vicki is a writer, curator, and consultant, and former director of architecture, design, and fashion at the British Council. In 2016, she was commissioner for the British Pavilion at the Venice Architecture Biennale. Nelly is an award-winning director and experienced designer who has worked with artists, musicians, scientists, and engineers, devising boundary-breaking events and experiences. In 2013, she assembled the International Space Orchestra, the world's first orchestra of space scientists. On the agenda, internationalism, experimentalism, and many more isms of design. We have just set up a university. It's called the University of the Underground. And it's basically a university that is tuition-free. And it's, uh, you know, it was created for mainly three reasons. You know, of course, how can we get students to get access to postgraduate studies, which actually will be affordable and, you know, free. And of course, that notion of free education is something that we can talk about afterwards. But that was a kind of uh, what we were looking at. How can we get young people to have access to that postgraduate element, to master's and PhD, which we want to develop in the coming years. For now, we only do masters. And so trying to define a new business model that will be supporting this. So looking at cultural institutions like the Tate or LACMA or, you know, like museums specifically, and looking at how they fundraise and how they have their development scheme to support their activities and kind of use that model to support education. So that's what we did. We call it the 80-20% kind of model, 80% coming from philanthropy, 20% coming from government. For, you know, one of the first reasons why we created it. And then there is two other reason why we developed it, which is how can we create a network of creative soldiers, we call them, or dreamers of the day. So basically people who are there to try and rethink the way that institutions, and again we can speak about what I mean by institution, but institutions kind of communicate uh, to members of the public and also how they communicate within their own workforce. Uh, and so developing a set of people who actually are a bit like hybrids, and then that's just coming to the third reason, which is how can we then develop this hybrid DCT, hybricity, I can't even say yeah. it, uh, in, uh, you know, in the uh, design landscape, but not just in the design discourse, but going above that and kind of looking at transdisciplinarity as, uh, as a syllabus for postgraduates. So how can you use, you know, design uh, practices, film practices, theatrical mm -hmm. practices, uh, philosophy and ethnography uh, and politics uh, into yeah. a curriculum that will then allow students to develop experience and well, of course it, experience. It's a really broad term. Yeah, and I mean, it's so interesting because, I mean, everything seems up for grabs at the moment in a way, doesn't it? Yeah. And, I, and, you know, I think that's the exciting thing about this, this moment. And education and institutions are, you know, these, some of those organizations you think are in such crisis at the moment. It seems like everybody I know who's working in a university, for example, is so fed up with the constraints of bureaucracy and the amount of administration they have to do and forms you have to fill in, um, you know, and this was my experience at the British Council as well. But then you think back to their origins, like I'm really interested in what you're talking about because also I'm at the Architectural Association, I'm, I'm, I'm the honorary treasurer at the AA. Um, and that was, um, 
You know, that was set up in the 19th century. And it, at the time, it, it was set up as like a radical alternative to the profession. And, and as the profession of architecture was still a quite a new thing, it was trying to educate architects in a new kind of way. And as an institution, it had a very interesting relationship to its core audience. And I think that's the thing, I mean, I really like about what you're doing is it seems to be this independence outside the system, but, you know, being able to really draw on the support and the talent of all of these different sectors and industries that you that you mention. And at the time, the AA was radical because it was a membership organization. So it was funded through architects just becoming members and then funding funding the education Mm. and the teaching through that so in a way it was like all of those practicing architects who wanted to support a new way of thinking about architecture put their own money in and that's what funded education and it seems like now we're trapped into a way of thinking that always says well it must be the state and we must jump through all these hoops and um, get these grants and um, yeah, you yeah. Know, follow this particular process. And um, actually, yeah, I mean, if you can get support from people and attract a, a loyal uh, audience that, of people who put their money in, then why should it be done in that traditional way? I don't know if you like to speak about it, but I think it would sure. be quite interesting to tell mm-hmm. as well as the auditors. I heard mm-hmm. that you were the niece of G.J. Ballard. Am I <laughs> J.G. Ballard. G.J. Yeah. yeah, that's G-G. right. Yeah, he's, yeah, he was my mum's brother. Yeah. So, so that's... Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, that has actually... Um, yeah, I'd say he's a, he's was a big influence on, on me, you know. Not that I... I mean, growing up, you know, I didn't see a lot of him. But um, he was an important kind of mentor in a way because when I was young, I was very political. Mm. I mean, I still am political, but I was very active right through my 20s. And he and I always used to discuss politics over Christmas dinner because that was the main time I saw him sitting around the table with, you know, 13 members of the family. And he would always try to humiliate me because he knew I was political. And at the time, you know, I was very idealistic. And... Mm. The funny thing is that although he's now the kind of hero of a lot of people for being a kind of radical thinker, he was very conservative um, politically and always voted Tory. Yeah. And, uh, you know, although he we agreed on some key things, like he was he was quite a libertarian, you know, and I and I was uh, when I was young, a big issue was surveillance and um, surveillance cameras. And I was you know into campaigning against that. And he always was totally with me on certain issues like like that. And also free speech and um, anti-censorship and, and so on. So, so some key issues we totally agreed on. And then when I became editor at Blueprint, he was an avid reader and I used to send him the magazine and he would always give me very good um, feedback and always comment on, on the magazine, send me nice notes. So I always kind of asked him advice on key things. Yeah. And I, I remember um, my application when I went to the British Council. He died just before that happened. And uh, I remember thinking, because uh, I was very unsure whether I should go and work for the British Council, because one thing is that their patron was Prince Charles, and I'm a real Republican, you know. I, um, <laughs> and uh, so I really felt unsure about whether I, whether I should go and work for this institution of, of the British state. 
And I remember thinking, God, I wish he was around to ask his advice about whether I should do this. And um, that's so that's a kind of, you know, there's a kind of sadness in a way that that he's not around because I always trusted and valued his opinion on things. But maybe we should remind some of the auditor about, I mean, G.J. Balak. It's just it's this thing, you know, about French language as well. It's like I always get this wrong, the J and the G. I mean, anyway, yeah. so I still it, will. It, was, it, it stood for James Graham yeah. Um, Ballard, yeah. Um, and he, he was known as Jim, but we called him Jamie. <laughs> Because my mum always called him Jamie when she was little, so... Our, fa our side of the family always called him Uncle Jamie, but um, everyone else called him Jim. Um, yeah, he was he was a, a lovely man and um, and an incredible yeah. author. Yes, so you writer, know, he, was, crash, he was a science rise, fiction yeah. writer, really, yeah. and that's he, he started um, writing short stories for for science magazines as well. He and um, and then in uh, science fiction magazines. That's how he started. Um, and then, But and always then with a novels. really, I mean, uh, an amazing capacity to describe as well architecture, which I think is yeah. really interesting that then, you know, you started to also go and, you know, and write about architecture too. And it's yeah. kind of like it's... Uh, he was really interested in architecture and always his novels were just, I think what he was best at was kind of creating these visual images through words. He had such a powerful imagination for place. And... Um, He, um, my dad's an architect, and around the time that my mum and dad got together was when he was writing High Rise. And um, so the fact that you know his his sister was getting married to an architect, and he was he was kind of coming into contact with this this milieu. I like to think that that was like a a real that was a kind of spur for for that book and in fact the character the architect character in the story is called Anthony Royal and my dad's Anthony Richardson so I always think uh, that's sort of like can't be a coincidence but, yeah you're listening to Thought Starters with Vicky Richardson writer curator and consultant and Nelly Bennett-Hayoun director and experienced designer Then you walked at the British Council. Yeah, so the, I mean, uh, coming back to institutions, actually, yeah. British Council's a really inspiring institution because, and I, and I, you know, I, I think some aspects of what it does now are just so profoundly, uh, you know, important. This idea of um, cultural exchange and cultural relations, and uh, I was always so motivated by the the sense that architecture and design are these universal disciplines and that through talking about architecture and design we can actually just put aside all of the other things that seem to get in the way of relationships between human beings from around the world and and I think I mean if I may say as well like because I've known you when you were working for the British Council right yeah. so, right the I first time we met was uh when you were wearing a space suit and you came along to the opening of an exhibition about Yuri Gagarin uh, Yuri Gagarin yeah 
<laughs> and I was lifting off some, like some of your colleagues from the uh, the core of the, of the British Council, right? Yes, they were right. all going onto that chair that yeah. was replicating. You remember the uh, the, the lift off, the lift off of yeah. Yuri Gagarin, which was was fun. It was very inspiring that that should happen in the lobby of the the British Council. But I think what was really interesting as well about you being in this tenure was that you know for me it was the first time that actually someone called me a British designer. And I thought that was really interesting because obviously I have a very strong French accent. I mean, I think yeah. it's very clear. But it's, uh, you know, what you were saying about being universal, I think that's really something which is quite uh, key of how you led that specific department as well, where, you know, it became really clear to me that actually, and it's true that the British Council has been supporting me to go all around. Like when I went in China for, you know, the uh, the, the Beijing Triennale that was uh, supported by the British Council. You know, I did a lot of workshop with the British Council. And it was just fantastic to me to see that, you know, the British Council will go out of their way to try and make me travel the world and kind of spread out the ideas of critical design mm. where, where I came from in the Royal College. But uh, also, you know, experience and how I was using theatrical practices elsewhere than in the UK and you were there to support it I mean you mm. and also you know the institution that was representing you while the French embassy on the other side mm. you know never would have considered yeah, yeah. you know the fact that it, it could be interesting for them to, well, it, it, to worked, <laughs> it worked the other way as well because I remember yeah. the architect David Chipperfield always complaining to me that he got loads of support from the Goethe Institute but never from the British Council right, <laughs> so because I complained I, about that I went to see the French um, uh, Council. I was like this is unbelievable yeah. I mean look your colleagues at the British Council like are you know really supporting me but you nothing yeah you know it's I mean, I quickly figured out that, that, that you know the criteria for supporting designers oh. had to really have nothing to do with nationality or any yeah. other, you know, kind of category, and that if somebody's contributing to the culture of, and the you know the, the development of British design, then they have to be British for the sake of what we were we were doing. And it was so. And in fact, you know, some of the most exciting programs I think that that we did were about bringing international designers to the UK. Mm. You know, so so not yeah, not yeah. just about exporting people and work from here to there, but about trying to internationalize our perspective here because I get very frustrated sometimes with all with the way that London particularly is seen as this global hub you know and we get very complacent about how international we are in our outlook but I've always actually thought that London is rather inward looking and obsessed with itself in, in some ways and that we needed we actually need to look out and see what other people are doing and the ways that people do things and not just sort of think how great we are here all the time. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think it's just a, a British thing to think that London is really great. I mean, the fact is, it's like yeah. it's a really, I mean, it is a really international city. Mm. It's like it really is a place where you want to come and study and be a part of. So I think, yeah, I mean, and yeah, then you left. Much, so, you know, how much do we know about architecture in Nigeria or how much yeah. do we know about architect, new architects in in Siberia, or for example? I mean, we just, yeah, yeah. we actually know very little about what's going on within our practice yeah. around the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
And yeah, I mean, my experience is it's it's been quite hard to get exhibitions from overseas to come to London mm. because institution, cultural institutions in London are very clear on what they're doing and what they think should they should be exhibiting. And it doesn't necessarily include uh, touring shows that are going ar- around the world. Lots of really important architecture shows, for example, never stop off in London because there are not institutions that are, I feel are open-minded enough to show the work. Mm. So I think it's, it's still a big problem. And, and then you left the British Council. Right. Because yeah. I've not seen you since. No. So no. I want to know what <laughs> happened. <laughs> I don't know if we can share yeah. that on the radio. Yeah. Well, nothing really happened. I mean, I just, um, I, I was worried, I was slightly worried about becoming one of those kind of institutionalized people that end up being there 30 years because oh. I could see in a way, you know, it could be endlessly interesting to stay at the British Council. It's a very sort of supportive in, environment and lots of good perks and, and so on. But also I, I just, you know, I felt I needed to, do something where I was much more in the driving seat mm. and, um, and and not constantly sort of struggling with battling because mm. that's what you have to do in a big organisation like that's that. True. You have yeah, to yeah. fight yeah. all the time, fight for your team, fight for money to do projects, um, stick up for what you think is important and, and, and it's kind of exhausting. Mm. And, you, and, you know, you, you end up spending a lot of your time doing that rather than thinking about the development of the work. Um, so, you know, I wanted to be able to do more writing, develop exhibition ideas. Yeah, think about um, think about ideas rather than necessarily the tactics and the politics of an organisation. So that's what I've that's what I've been trying to do really. And, and then yeah. Brexit and uh, yes, are, we, we are, are we allowed to talk about it? Or, of course, yeah, are we allowed? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is this is sort of. No, I know, yeah. but this is what's this is what's really interesting. I mean, I'm fascinated by the fact that you you talk about institutions. Yeah. I, I know that you you're I'm you're, a breeder of the institution. Is yeah. it what you're going to say? But the institution, <laughs> like the big institution yeah. that Brexit was all about was obviously the EU. Yeah. And how is it? I, I struggle with this. That when I was at the British Council, yeah. everybody knew that the EU was a pain in the neck. All the EU projects that we got involved in culturally um, were, you know, so difficult. You had to devote so much resources to filling in the forms. You almost had to employ somebody full-time to manage um, the form-filling process, the regulation, the bureaucracy, the overbearing nature of the institution was obvious for everyone to see. And now suddenly, post-referendum, it seems like most of our, the creative world and mm. artists and people involved in the cultural sector have completely suspended any the, all their critical faculties about the EU and become complete remainers and complete loyal uh, devotees of the EU. And, and you know, I, I think that's quite a strange thing because um, I think this is really exciting what's happened, that the public has rejected this institution and said... We want to take back control and we want to have change. And to me, that's like a really, it's a really radical, innovative thing that's happened. But I think that the thing that did become clear in the vote was that the thing that united anybody that voted to leave was a sense we want real change because we want to reject this sort of establishment and this is a vote that actually counts for something because you know most votes in in elections you you're kind of making some kind of compromise you're ending up voting for 
an individual, an MP who you who maybe is the best of the bunch or the kind of least worst. Whereas in this referendum, it's so clear. It's like that your vote will actually count for something, will actually make change. Uh, and, I think, and I think what that's proved to be oh. true because it feels like before the referendum, it felt like we we're in this kind of stasis of politics, like Tina uh, there is no alternative, you know. For at least a decade, politics has become was this sort of really boring thing that you can't influence that happens in Westminster and, you know, nobody really talks about. And then suddenly, you know, it initiated this exciting period where every single architecture or design event I went to, people were actually talking about politics. And I thought, wow, this is really exciting. And I feel like now we're in this phase where a lot more is up for grabs this is a moment to have a new alternative or to do something different. Well, again, I think it's, um, you know, I think, you know, and I really, you know, great, you have your own views, but I think it's, uh, ultimately, I always have been politicized, so it's not like a new kind of factor that just came out of Brexit, you know, and I think it's important to remember that that also, like I said, University of the Underground was pretty much baking for the past six years. It's only now that I could actually make it happen you know, after I had work in a situation and I also kind of, you know, developed but my I don't, I think as an educator. But I appetite for what you're doing, which is, it's not just that you, but it's taking you time. I think there's a, when it comes a, to an audience for it. Well, I think audience probably always been there, but I think it's uh, more the, the question about the Brexit being pro or against. I think you can't summarize, you know, uh, 40 years of history, 50 years of history just like that and just say, OK, yes, yes or no. And there is nothing in between. You know, it's like when people say, oh, you're a woman or you're a man, and then you kind of forget everything in between, basically. I think this is this kind of like mindset, which I think to me is really retrograded to actually think that you can lead uh, and discuss uh, such complex issues on a yes and or no basis, which I found really irritating. Uh, I think there is, of course, uh, you know, I, I'm obviously, I'm, uh, you know, I believe in democracy more than anything else. But when it comes to decisions like this, which have to do with history, I think there is a lot of it that has not been reminded to members of the public, you know, how do we, and that, you know, and to some extent, like, yes, maybe we should just rethink about how we integrate Europe in the history book, how we speak about it, how... But doesn't that contradict part of your philosophy? Because actually isn't isn't your philosophy about... um, you know this idea of dreaming and also the idea of being a kind of out outsider who can who can influence um an institution which you know by its any kind but of institution the Europe was it, born it, out of a dream experts, it was like technocrats post second world war you know how can we unite effort to actually you know make sure that right. the disaster I, of the second world yeah. war doesn't happen anymore the europe is to me uh what's you know, what is social dreaming? It's basically a united politician force trying to like bring together some of their thought process and some of their economics to actually be stronger against, you know, kind of stupidity and, you know, and rebuilding. But then, but then, of course, then comes... If you look at the politicians who set it up, I mean, they were the sort of elite of um, the European establishment. And, And yes, they were terrified about their being... Um, about another war, but they were also uh, looking for for ways, I think, to, to develop to, to exclude the mass, you know, the mass of of, of people, um, and to find systems and structures that would bring this kind of stability that would exclude the possibility 
of um, you know of, of of mass uprisings and and political political movements, bottom up political movements, and and that's exactly what the EU structure does. You know, it's it's a heavily bureaucratic structure that uh, where that's with all one sorts side of, of it, decisions that are made behind closed doors and they're never subject to any sort of accountability. So. Um, the same goes for the United Nations, same goes for many institutions. So, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, and I think our point, at least in the University of the Underground, is to say, uh, let's not get rid of them at all. Let's actually look at how we can rework within them to actually, you know, make them get better, or more in line with actually the way that the public want to kind of collaborate or be a part of their discussion. So I think, you know, for me, there is a difference between saying no altogether and kind of like removing themselves or even starting the discussion and kind of tackling the challenge and kind of being a bit of, uh, you know, a co-ward mm. in that process. But uh, who's to say and we should Instead of have a actually go front-head and trying uh, to like really reshuffle it from within. So I think it's uh, that's also for me the kind of the biggest uh, disappointment with Brexit is that and also the fact that, you know, within that there is a lot of the young generation has again be forgotten in that decision that has been made by their parents or grandparents to actually say well now you're going to have to actually pay a fortune to go and study in any European country and you're going to be living in this island kind of like left on your own in the middle of you make it sound like all these things have been decided I mean I think the the referendum was well, just, I think it was going just to a trigger. Difficult. It was just a trigger, and now the real issues have to be debated and, um, and nothing, nothing is in- inevitable. And if if you if you accept that things are inevitable, then that's giving up, isn't it? I mean, you know, we have to we have to influence what happens now um, through argument, through action, campaigning, whatever it is. I don't think anything is inevitable. I remain completely committed to freedom of movement and cultural exchange um freedom of uh, learning as well uh, which is what we are all about at the university of the underground that's totally what we agree on anyway (laughs) (laughs) this has been thought starters recorded at the pod at white city place thought starters is a dnn co project for white city place produced by david michon recorded by claire urban and edited by claire crofton To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram with the handle at whitecityplace, or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes, Acast, and Stitcher. Give us a rating, write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time. Thought Starters.